Hope is our theme this morning, the first candle of Advent. So turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 11, uh, a great passage on hope when it's something that we are all desperately yearning for, especially these days. To let you know just how much people are yearning for hope today in 2020, I'm sure you've heard that studies are revealing people started listening to Christmas music earlier than ever before. People began putting up Christmas decorations earlier than ever before. People are hoping for hope. Even the Hallmark Channel has been showing Hallmark Christmas movies sooner than normal. And for some of us, it just ain't Christmas until you've seen a Hallmark Christmas movie. Now, why is that? I mean, there's only like one storyline. It's all the same. Uh, David Hockholter is an author, and he wonders aloud how millions of people like himself are hooked on Hallmark. He says, here's your typical storyline. First of all, it's soupy, it's goopy, it's sappy, and it's cliche, and yet millions of people watch them. Here's what happens, typically. There's, uh, there's this sharp, attractive, highly successful businesswoman from the big city. And she decides she's had enough. She needs a break. So a couple weeks before Christmas, she leaves the city and finds this quaint, small, Norman Rockwell kind of town. While there, she runs into this ruggedly handsome widower who has this cute seven-year-old. And the seven-year-old begins plotting to try to bring this woman and his father together. Well, as you know, they meet, and uh, the woman begins to realize that she really doesn't like her career. It's unfulfilling, even though she's successful. But now she has to decide, is she going to move back to the city, back to an unfulfilling job? Or is she going to stay in this quaint, quaint little town and see her life changed and yet find true love and happiness? Well, of course, as Christmas Eve approaches, they have this huge fallout. There's this big misunderstanding. And of course, the seven-year-old's behind the scenes trying to plot everything to work out. Finally, on Christmas Eve, at the outdoor Christmas Eve town gala that again rivals a Norman Rockwell painting, the two come together, they embrace, they kiss. The the young, the seven-year-old smiles satisfactorily and it snows. And guess what? The end. They're all like that. We know they're not real. And yet we continue to watch them. Why? Because even if they're not true, we all long for stories of hope. 2020 has not been an easy year. covid Isolation, division. Where's the hope? Well, we're actually not that unusual 
in the 8th century B.C., God's people were also asking, where's the hope? Now, some of us are asking, where's the hope? Because it's our own fault, our own sinful choices, our own unbelief. Or some of us are asking, where's the hope? Because this world around us is is just broken. And in some ways, through no fault of our own, we're losing hope. Well, in the 8th century B.C., Judah, the southern tribes of the nation, they were about to be attacked by Israel, the northern tribes, who had joined ranks with Syria. And Judah and King Ahaz, their ruler, feared invasion. Now, God had sent Isaiah to clearly say to Ahaz, Relax. I got this. But Ahaz and Judah refused to put their hope in God. As a result, God sends Isaiah back to Ahaz and Judah and says, You as a people who are alive and huge tree, you will be cut off in your pride and left as a stump. Maybe there's some of us this morning that feel our lives have gone gone from a a life-giving tree to a stump. Maybe through our own sin, maybe through the brokenness of the world. Regardless, God sends Isaiah to Ahaz and to Judah and says, in spite of your sin, in spite of your brokenness of the world around you, I will still come to you with hope. And no matter how badly you mess things up, I will never take away from you the prospect of hope if you just return to me in repentance and faith. That's where we pick up the action. As Judah is told, they're going to be cut down. But God promises out of that stump, the Messiah, whose birth we anticipate through Advent, whose birth we celebrate as we ask him to be born afresh in our own lives, and whose return we anticipate as we long for the second coming. Let's all stand out of reverence for God's word. Follow along as I read Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 11. This is God's word. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. 
Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people, from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. May God bless the hearing and teaching of his inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative word. This is God's word. He gave it to us because he loves us. And he wants us to be filled with hope. Especially when things seem hopeless. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and thanks for the catechism reminder that this is a supernatural transaction here. That as we read your word, it's alive. As your word is preached, your spirit works in our souls. So come Holy Spirit, give us hope and enable us to offer hope to others. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So three ways we find in the person of Jesus the hallmark of hope. Hope in a real Savior, not a fictional myth. First of all, find hope in Christmas grace. This passage is flooded with grace. Look at verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. I've already explained to you the context. King Ahaz and the people of God and Judah are fearing invasion and fearing the worst. They turn to their own resources. They turn to their own self-sufficiency and self-reliance. They refuse to wait for God to fight their battles. As a result of their pride, God gets out the chainsaw and has Isaiah yell, Timber! And the nation that is Judah is cut to the ground. What sin or pride or unbelief in your life has led to feeling that God has just taken you down to a stump. This passage goes on to say 
God's not done. Out of the stump, there will come a shoot, a branch. Now, what Isaiah is saying, what God is saying through Isaiah, is even though the people of Judah are cut down, and Assyria will fail them, and they'll eventually be carried off into exile, no longer a people, no longer a temple, no longer a city, Yet, in spite of their sin and weakness and fallenness and brokenness, God's plan for Messiah will not be thwarted. And Jesus, fully human, will come through the Davidic line somehow. God will make sure of it. So where do you take that pride and unbelief and sin and failure and recognize that God's heart of grace toward you is still working life into you, around you, and through you? I mean, Ahaz and Judah had done everything to make a mess of everything. And sometimes we do too. And in those times, we can tend to lose hope. But it's precisely those times that this passage reminds us, Aslan, to use C.S. Lewis, or Jesus, is constantly on the move. A shoot from the stump of Jesse will arise. In spite of sin and brokenness, Jesus will be born. Verse 1, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. In other words, out of the death, the seeming death of a stump, God promises below the cold, dark ground, the roots still have the sap of life. And that sap of life will produce a branch that bears fruit. And if we know Jesus, we are that fruit. That the branch out of a seeming dead stump bears. And though at times this Advent, it may seem that you feel dead. Or that your spiritual life is dead. Or that all your joy is dead. Or that all your hope is dead. God reminds us in this passage, do not lose hope. Because if you know Christ, he is the branch that's bearing fruit in you and through you. I read this past week of uh, the first female doctor of the Catholic Church. Now, not doctor, meaning medical doctor. Uh, First female doctor, meaning the, the first woman who was ever granted sainthood, who uh, was recognized as having made a huge theological, biblical contribution to the church. Her name is Teresa of Avila, from Avila, Spain. She was born in 1515. Uh, her mother apparently was godly and tender and warm. And from an early age, God's grace and kindness seemed to be pursuing young Teresa. She would leave at times to go to a silent, quiet place 
and pray for a long period of time for a youngster. And she loved nothing more than giving gifts to the poor. When she became a teenager, uh, tragically, Teresa's mom died, leaving her in the care of her rather strict and stern father. She felt all alone, and she was losing hope. In a desperate attempt, she changed all of her friends. She left the faith. She began hanging out with very worldly people and pursuing the pleasures of this life. She was miserable. She had lost all hope. In desperation, her father made her go to a convent to study to become a nun. Surprisingly, at that convent, God found her and reignited her spiritual passion. And yet it wasn't for years later that she was actually converted in her mid-30s. When she was converted as a nun, she contracted a very serious case of malaria. She experienced long bouts of, of, of incredible pain. She wrestled with illness most of her life with rejection from people who thought she was too zealous for Christ. Why do I tell this story? Because at the end of her life, as she looked back upon all her failures, but more importantly, as she looked up to who God is, she wrote these words, God is even kinder than you think. God is even kinder than you think. How would your life be different if you really believe that? If you trusted the passage that it really reveals God's heart and that when God meets sin in his people's lives, though there may be consequences, he will meet that sin with kindness. God is even kinder than you think. That will bring you hope this Advent season. Find hope in Christmas grace. Secondly, find hope in Christmas righteousness. If the first point and the first verse pointed to the humanity of Jesus, his human nature. Verse 2 points to the divinity of Messiah. We see in verse 2 the sevenfold fullness of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit, verse 2, shall rest upon him. And of course, the Spirit rested upon Jesus from, from conception, right? Uh, the, the, the reason why Jesus had to be fully man was because Adam as man owed God perfect obedience. And therefore we, descending from Adam, owe God perfect obedience. So Jesus was a man to offer perfect obedience. But Jesus needed to be man as well, because man as man sinned, and man as man owed an infinite debt 
to God for sin. And humanity had to pay that. So Jesus had to be fully human. But in verse 2, we learn that Jesus also had to be fully God. First of all, he had to be fully God because he had to be conceived by the Holy Spirit and not by a man and a woman coming together. Because if Jesus was conceived by a man and a woman coming together, then he was conceived guilty of Adam's sin like we are. And he would also be polluted by Adam's sin like we are. So Jesus had to be fully God as well as fully man. Finally, he had to be fully God because the infinite wrath of God could only be born by God. Only as the divine nature strengthened the human nature could he endure the infinite wrath of God. And because he was God as well as man, His divinity gave his human blood infinite value. So he was able to pay for the sins that we would ever commit. For all the sins, for all his people, over all time. And we're told that this fullness of the Spirit in Jesus, the Spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, the fear of the Lord. We also learn in verse 5 that righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. Jesus lived a righteous life for those who could not achieve such a life. This is where the great exchange comes in. This is where we talk about what's, what's termed as double imputation. That when we transfer our trust from our own goodness and our own righteousness and our own efforts and our own religiosity and we rest in the gospel of Jesus Christ and we trust his obedient life and his substitutionary death, the great exchange takes place and Jesus takes our sin and the punishment of our sin and the anger and wrath of God upon himself and he exchanges our sin for his righteousness, which he credits to us. So those who took the course and failed have a proxy who took the course and aced it. And he gives us his robe of righteousness. Now, if you have not transferred your trust from yourself to Jesus, you have no hope. Look at verse 4. It says at the end there that he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With his breath he shall kill the wicked. The righteous judge is Jesus. And while we anticipate celebrating his incarnation, we also need to anticipate the consummation when King Jesus who was born as a lamb will come back as a lion. That's why our only hope for hope is being robed in the righteousness of Christ. But this righteousness that he wears as a belt is not merely a declared righteousness. But Jesus loves us so much and his grace is so powerful and his heart of kindness is so overwhelming that he also starts working righteousness in us in an actual way. 
So Christians aren't merely people who are declared righteous. We are people by God's grace and spirit that are being made daily more progressively righteous. So if you find yourself hopeless this morning before sin, and you just don't see how you're ever going to change, I know it's hard, but God says, He says to Ahaz, do not lose hope. Continue to hope in me. Look, the enemy of sin is parallel to the enemy of Syria. And Ahaz became a stump. Judah became a stump because they lost faith. And that's how they lost hope. And when it comes to your battle with sin, my battle with sin, God is sending Isaiah to us and saying, Stop your self-reliance. Stop your self-sufficiency. Stop your coping mechanisms. And trust in the righteousness I declare to be true of you and the righteousness I promise to work in you. I mentioned earlier that people are decorating earlier than ever this year. Now, some people decorate as just tradition, right? Family tradition. Other people, if you notice, make it a downright competition. I mean, like, think Christmas vacation, right? You got your neighbors, and they're, they're trying to out-decorate you. They're trying to find brighter lights than you. Well, true story. Uh, one woman from suburban Detroit, uh, Jamie Kelly, she decided she'd had enough of the competition. It all started when she started putting up her own Christmas lights and looked at her neighbor's yard, and she just lost all hope. She despaired. She said to herself, I'll never be able to keep up. So you know what she did? This is so great. She went to Lowe's and bought a four-by-eight-foot platform of plywood. And then using a Sharpie, she made a diagram. It was actually the form of an arrow. Then, getting a bunch of white Christmas lights and nails, she strung the lights over the diagram that she had made with a Sharpie, turned on the lights, and all of her neighbors and anyone who went to the road saw this huge lighted arrow pointing from her house to her neighbor's house. But she didn't stop there. She got more lights, and with script lettering, wrote, ditto. (laughs) So she claimed her neighbor's decorations as her own. And that is a great picture of the gospel. Many of us are trying to, to build up the brightness of our own bulbs. And it will lead to nothing but hopelessness and despair. And Jesus longs for us to take our ugly, unrighteous lives and simply make an arrow pointing to Jesus and putting on our face those letters, ditto. Whatever's true of Him, I'm claiming. He is the light of the world. I'm not. He is the adornment of God. I'm not. I'm going to look to Him. If you look to Christ for your righteousness, you will never fail 
to find hope. Find hope in Christmas grace. Find hope in Christmas righteousness. Thirdly, find hope in Christmas peace. Now, I know some of you are about to be disappointed because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to negate uh, some of the theology that all of us have been brought up with, perhaps. I don't think verses 6 through 9 have anything to do with a thousand-year reign known as the millennium. I don't believe there's going to be a millennium. If anything, I believe we're in a period of time we could call the millennium right now, when Jesus is reigning from on high and subduing all of his enemies and our enemies under his feet gradually. I do believe, however, that this is some of the most beautiful poetry you're ever going to find in the prophet. You see, you need to interpret the Bible in light of the kind of literature the Bible is using at the particular place that you're studying it. You don't interpret the prophets or the Psalms the same way you interpret Paul's letters. They are two different literary genres, so you have to interpret them differently. And prophecy, like Isaiah, as well as uh, Psalms and some other elements, use lots of metaphors and similes and figures of speech. It's symbolic oftentimes. And so what Isaiah is doing is giving a grand picture of a return to shalom, to the peace and flourishing and thriving of the Garden of Eden as a benefit of the work of Christ. So let's go through this real briefly. Look at verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the cow, verse 7, shall lie down together with the bear. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. The weaned child put his hand on the adder's den. The first thing that's revealing is safety. Safety among creatures that are normally hostile with one another. And the first thing you need to see is what Isaiah is pointing to is peace between God and humanity. That's the first purpose of this poetry. To remind us that apart from Christ, God is hostile toward us. And apart from Christ, we are hostile toward Him. And only the finished work of Christ can bring us peace with God. But if, in fact, we transferred our trust from ourselves to Jesus, the Prince of Peace, then we are at total peace with God. Not partial peace, not peace that you have to maintain by your good efforts, but complete and utter peace with God all the time. Now you say, well, Bob, you're going too far now. That can't be true. Okay. If Jesus didn't purchase complete, total, internal peace between you and God, then you tell me when you're not at peace with God and when you are. Your answer has to be based on something you've done or not done. If Jesus didn't purchase total peace, then when you have peace with God, it's dependent upon you is what you're telling me. No, it's not. If Jesus didn't purchase total, absolute peace thriving and flourishing between us and God, then we're never at peace with God. 
And Isaiah goes out of his way with beautiful, poetic, metaphorical language to show us the beauty of the peace that we have with God. And notice it also says that the bear and the cow and their young shall lie down together. That's again pointing to the permanence of the peace, of the shalom, of the thriving, of the flourishing. It's not just the adult bear and the adult cow that are at peace, but even their young and their young's young and their young's young's young young. In other words, eternal peace, eternal shalom. Now, I will say this is also a picture, although again, I don't think literal, because we don't know what heaven's going to be like, but of the new Jerusalem, of the new heavens and the new earth. And what Isaiah is teaching is not that there will be bears and cows in the new Jerusalem, although, frankly, I do believe there will be. But what he's trying to teach is the peace, the shalom, the well-being, the wholeness, the thriving and the flourishing there will be in the new Jerusalem. But folks, he's also giving us hope that even in this life, God's kind heart will move us more and more and more toward shalom. Internal peace. Vertical peace with God. Horizontal peace with each other. Notice it says that the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's not talking about rational knowledge only. We, we do need understanding with our minds. But, but folks, if you only know facts about Jesus, if you only agree that Jesus was born of a virgin on Christmas morning, if you only believe intellectually that Jesus lived a perfect life and died on a cross, if you just understand that rationally, then you are still lost and you have no hope. But if you are actually believing the promise of God's loving kindness and grace that he shows toward you through Christ and what Christ has done, if you're actually resting in the Father's good heart as well as his promises, then you have every reason to hope. You have no reason to lose hope. That's not to say we don't struggle. That's not to say that Christians don't wrestle with hopelessness and despair at times. But God always brings passages like this to us. Not fiction, but reality about a real Savior, a real hallmark of hope. Think back to those hallmark Christmas movies. What if they're not so far-fetched? We are people who are missing something from our lives. We are people that are looking for hope. Verse 6 says a little child will lead them. The cute seven-year-old kid may not be so fictional after all. 
He's real in the child of Christmas. And he wants to lead us to hope. How will your Christmas movie end? Not just this year, but every year. Even on into eternity. Every reason to hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of hope that we receive. God, you even tell us in Romans that that through endurance in the scriptures, we might have hope. Endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures. So God, encourage our hearts. Make us people of hope. Help us to offer hope. And Lord, if there's anybody here this morning that's watching or sitting with us, and they don't know that they know they're resting in the finished work of Christ, might today be the day you give them full confidence that they are yours and that they have complete and utter peace with you because they're hoping in the work of Christ. God, for the rest of us, would you cause our hope to soar in these troubled times? Not because circumstances get better. We hope they do. Pray they do. But Father, our hope is in your heart of love and kindness and grace and patience toward us. Give us your peace, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.